It's time we heard from our old pal, America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about the battle flag of the Army of Northern Virginia, which has been thrust into the news lately because some kid who loved it went crazy and committed an atrocity. Yes, again. The South continues to claim over and over that the flag is not a testament to their history of slavery, but an illustrious banner heralding their heritage and independence. The same way a skull and crossbones is a symbol of change and rebirth, and the swastika just a harmless emblem of Caucasian pride. Anything can stand for anything if you want it to. Yankee Doodle stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaroni. That doesn't mean people are going to start serving feathers and cheese as a side dish to barbecue dinners anytime soon. But it is disingenuous to the extreme to suggest that when the Stars and Bars is worn or brandished, it's not a wink-wink, nudge-nudge, knowing and shared bigoted commentary with no need to be verbalized. The ultimate dog whistle in the key of Dixie. Proof that though the war of northern aggression has been over for 150 years, the grudge remains alive. The South never quit fighting. They just took a breather with an extended intermission. Besides, their protestations might be a bit more believable if the states that fly the flag over Confederate monuments and state grounds weren't the same ones that defied integration until the bitter end with police and dogs and fire hoses. But it's about states' rights. Yeah, especially those rights that include owning your labor force. They may call it macaroni, but it's white supremacy. And Republicans wonder why they can't get black votes. Pull the flags down on government lands. Let people fly or paint or tattoo them on their own property, which thankfully no longer includes other people. For Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. He's, of course, so right about this. The idea that the Civil War was about states' rights is just, it's it's so ridiculous. The rights in question of these southern states all centered on owning slaves. That is exactly why there was a Civil War. And speaking of politics, in this case on a local level, we're genuinely sorry to see that it appears that former state Senator Leland Yee may be avoiding a trial for political corruption. We were kind of hoping to see the public political downfall of Senator Lee, who once advocated for the continuance of the serving of shark fin soup in Chinese restaurant because it was part of a cultural tradition. But it looks as though he's just changed his plea to guilty and will just be sent off to federal prison, and that'll be that. Much more interesting than that is the fact that apparently our our mayor here in Sacramento, Kevin Johnson, is evidently suing Sacramento News and Review writer Cosmo Garvin for the fact that he's been reporting on some of the mischief taking place in City Hall. Johnson himself has been forced to testify in a trial taking place uh, dealing with the arena deal, which has been stinking up the air around the Sac metro area for the past couple of years. Of course, I should hasten to add, when I say things like that, that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, 
does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But in spite of that clarification, it's still one hell of a stink. After the news and review, and to a lesser degree, the Sacramento Bee nailed the mayor for deleting text messages and emails related to the negotiations that took place over the arena deal. The mayor's now saying, oh, I, I just did it without thinking. He said there was no ill intent in doing that. He said it was just a bunch of chit-chat with nothing relevant to the court case. Well, thank you very much, but the city had received a legal letter advising them that they were required to preserve all electronic communications related to the deal, as reported by a piece in the B by Tony Bizjack. But you know, if I may just digress for a moment, it certainly appears that in the case of Sacramento, as in everywhere around the world, and I know a lot of listeners listen to us from places like China and Finland and the UK, it's long been my suspicion that Listeners in other places can identify with the kind of political corruption that takes place here in our state capital because it's the same everywhere, isn't it? It all comes down to what economist Milton Friedman once described as the golden rule. And that is that the guy with the gold makes the rules. Taxpayers in Sacramento were not enthusiastic about tax dollars being used to support millionaire owners of sports teams and people that want to build arenas and such. So the way around this was to not put it before the voters. Anyway, I must have missed something while I was in Costa Rica because I was just unaware that this thing really was going to trial, but it is. But to quote from the piece in the B, Kevin Johnson spent more than three hours in the stand Tuesday. During his testimony, he said the prospective King's owners initially asked the city two years ago if it could chip in more to the deal, but he said no. Said Johnson, I shot it down. It was ridiculous from the onset. They were just negotiating. We said absolutely not and moved on. Plaintiff's attorney, Jeffrey Anderson, who says he believes the city did put sweeteners in the deal, showed Johnson and the court numerous memos and emails obtained from the city during lawsuit discovery proceedings that indicated the mayor and other city representatives did continue to discuss deal points that could provide value to the Kings over time. You know, we want to put a nod in, too, to Joe Rubin, who's been covering this issue of the deletion of, uh, of emails and doing his best to make sure that they got preserved, emails and texts and such. The B notes, as was previously reported by the News and Review, that those deal points to provide value included giving the team the rights to build six digital billboards and the rights to operate several thousand city-owned parking spots in the arena site which they added Anderson and co-counsel Patrick Saluri contended the city should have listed dollar values for those in published deal documents. And as the next paragraph notes, as part of the arena agreement, the city committed to providing $255 million in cash and land value toward construction of a new arena in the former downtown plaza site. And we will continue to follow this most curious story. We want to give a thumbs up, on the other hand, to one local politician. That would be Senator Richard Pan, Democrat from Sacramento, who has managed to get a vaccine bill through the legislature. I think the fact that he's a pediatrician helped, which is going to really reduce the ability of parents to have their kids excluded from vaccines. And if everybody doesn't get vaccinated, well, the risks remain much higher for everybody. 
And as a physician myself, I, I support Dr. Pan and the legislature, and in this case, Governor Jerry Brown for signing the bill. Although I have to admit that does, although I have to admit this does put me at odds with actor Jim Carrey, star of the appropriately named Dumb and Dumber series of movies, not to mention Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. But uh, sorry, Jim, we, we, we really do have to do this. All right, another item is related to the raising of children. And as a follow-up on our discussion on last week's program about how uh, people just don't seem to regard children as having any right or ability to go unsupervised in life these days. But uh, there's a new book out worthy of mention titled How to Raise an Adult. According to Time Magazine, as a former dean of freshman and undergraduate advising at Stanford, author Julie Lithcourt Hames learned a good deal about what she calls overhelped students who were so used to their parents telling them what to do that they couldn't make decisions on their own. In this new book, the author outlines different strategies to help guardians avoid the overparenting trap and empower their children to succeed on their own. Among them, making kids clean up after themselves, refusing to bring forgotten items to school, and asking kids how they plan to fix their problems instead of offering a solution. According to Time, Lithcott Hames, a mother of two, knows seeding control can be nerve-wracking, but said, quote, for our kids' sake and also for our own, unquote, we need to stop parenting from fear. And it appears the Washington Post may be following up on something we talked about on Radio Parallax a couple weeks back, which is that exposure to nature is good for kids' brains. Post, in this case, cites a study that we made reference to on this show, I believe, that uh, was done in Barcelona, involved a 12-month study of 2,500 second through fourth graders. The researchers used satellite images to assess the amount of green space around the children's homes and schools, grassy fields, trees, plants, etc. They also measured local levels of traffic-related air pollution. The cognitive tests they performed on the kids exposed to more green spaces, particularly at school, experienced 5% increases in working memory and a 1% drop in inattentiveness. Those don't sound like a very impressive numbers to me, but however you may quantify it, I, I'm pretty certain that you, you're going to get beneficial effects from green space on, I think, everybody's mental health. And of course, one huge plus to having green space around us all, even in urban environments, is the fact that you can grow food locally. Thankfully, it is dawning on people that, you know, having plots of food interspersed with urban areas... Um, will allow us all to eat better, and there's some real effort moving in this direction. Now, if we can just keep developers from not infilling everything, we, we may have a shot at some good local produce. Of course, when you have goals like this, you're going to have to bump up against jerks like Phil Angelides and Angelo Sakopoulos, who have been busy spreading urban sprawl into the flood-prone Natomas Basin, and in my neighborhood, replacing peach orchards with the McVillage development. And I want to note, too, that uh, while I was out of the country for a week, I wasn't leaving water woes behind. They're, uh, they're not having a drought down in Central America at the moment, but um, the verdict is in from uh, some NASA satellite studies on the Earth's aquifers, and the news ain't good. Underground aquifers supply 35% of the water used by Earth's overpopulated 7 billion inhabitants. But the Washington Post notes that NASA... Scientists have taken a look at, uh, at this resource, 
and um, well, have actually been able to measure underground water by detecting subtle changes in the Earth's gravitational pull caused by the heavier weight of the liquid in the soil. Uh, between 2003 and 2013, more water was removed from 21 of the world's 37 largest groundwater basins, then got replaced by rainfall and melting snowpack. Five of the Earth's aquifers were classified as extremely or highly stressed because of the rate of depletion, and eight were deemed overstressed. The most overburdened aquifers were found in some of the world's driest regions where millions rely heavily on groundwater, including the Middle East, South Asia, and Northern Africa. Yes, under Muammar Gaddafi and, I guess, others in Libya, they basically sunk wells down and just started pumping like there's no tomorrow. And unfortunately, it may well be that someday there is no tomorrow. The most troubled aquifer in the U.S., not surprisingly, California's Central Valley Aquifer. It's being rapidly drained to irrigate drought-stricken farm fields. As reported on Radio Parallax, people like Stuart Resnick, who makes an awful lot of money with his pistachio and almond trees, is planting more. Think about it. Every almond, 1.1 gallons of water. And during the drought, we're planting more. Now, we did have a correspondent on the scene down in Southern California last week who was taking a look in general at, at the scene down there. He did report back on the efforts that he observed in, 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 as regards to water conservation, and he was very impressed by them. What impressed him the most was how completely oblivious people are down there to any form of water conservation. He said he saw them watering greenery all hours of the day all over the place. You know, I think I'll have to ask him to come on the show maybe later today or on next week's uh, program to, to talk about what was seen. But, you know, it was still in that, that glow of, uh, of, of vacation uh, optimism. I'm going to focus on some nicer stuff now. How about this? There's apparently a super fast test for malaria that's been developed using lasers on the skin. New Scientist magazine notes that like the fictional tricorder in Star Trek, these little laser pulses can um, shine onto a vein in a person's wrist or earlobe. The laser's wavelength is tuned so it doesn't harm human tissue, but gets absorbed by hemocin, which are waste crystals produced by the malarial parasite Plasmodium falciparum. These crystals absorb the laser energy. They warm the surrounding blood plasma, and they actually make it bubble. An oscilloscope, placed on the skin alongside the laser, senses these nanoscale bubbles when they start popping, which allows them to detect malarial infections in 20 seconds. They quote Dimitri Lapotko of Rice University in Houston as saying it's the first true non-invasive diagnostic test. This probe is going to be trialed now in Gambia. It could cut the cost of a malarial test to less than 8 cents per person. Existing tests can cost as much as 50 cents, and because they require blood to be taken, they can only be done by people with specialist medical training. And I got to say, I'm no expert on malaria, but uh, from what I know, it's pretty tough to look at a blood smear and pick out those plasmodia sometimes. In fact, I remember the tale of one professor we had in parasitology back in medical school days who described how one particular lab, they asked him to take a look at the blood smears because although they strongly suspected malaria, they were looking and looking and they just couldn't find evidence of it. He described how he took the blood smear, stuck it under the microscope, <laughs> looked down, and smack in the middle of his field of view was one of the parasites. And when he said, oh, I think I see one here, 
They all looked at him like he was a genius. Which does indeed demonstrate, at least in this case, that sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Speaking of medical testing, um, we have to admit, here at Radio Parallax, although this correspondent is, let's just say, skeptical of some of the advantages that technology is bringing us, some new computer apps might prove themselves. Article in the B by Sammy Kaiola notes that um, California is now the third state to get a new mobile app for in-home sexually transmitted disease testing. It's got a fairly hefty price tag, $149, but think of what it costs to go visit the doctor. Uh, Tech-savvy users may be willing to pay this in exchange for the discreet and convenience that these STD tests uh, being delivered to their doors offer. This application was launched in California by Planned Parenthood. Linda Williams, the CEO of Planned Parenthood Maramonte, calls it one of the most emotionally loaded services that the reproductive health organization offers. She's quoted in the piece as saying, people feel a real sense of shame when they think they might have contracted a sexually transmitted infection. There's a feeling of, I really screwed up, or I'm really embarrassed. And, of course, fighting that stigma is important. That can keep people of any age from getting tested at a clinic or doctor's office. So, from what I understand, you can, you know, take a self-testing kit, send it off to the appropriate lab without consulting a doctor, after which time the lab will then, you know, send you the results on your iPhone. I guess that's how it works. And uh, to this physician, this, this seems like a step in the right direction. And apparently down in Arizona, tomorrow, a law will come into effect which allows anyone to order a laboratory test with no need to see a doctor. So... In Arizona, tests for STDs, prediabetes, vitamin levels, and fertility will be on the menu. And again, this is probably a good thing, although we've noted on this program before and will no doubt note again that when you try and get medical information on the internet, it can be tough. Sometimes with no medical training, it's difficult to interpret the results. Uh, I guess that goes without saying. Of course, this does remind me of an old joke. Back in the days when computers were the size of small sheds, one of these behemoths malfunctioned. An expert was called in to see what he could do. The guy shows up, takes off a panel or two, looks around, inspects the wiring, walks halfway down the hall, takes out a rubber hammer, and slams the side of the computer. After which point, it begins working perfectly. He then submitted a bill for $1,500. The owners of the computer, then seeking to escape responsibility for the bill, asked him if he would itemize that for them which he did as follows. Hitting the computer with a rubber hammer, $1. Knowing where to hit the computer with the rubber hammer, $14.99. Speaking of computers, down in Costa Rica, I was having a chat with uh, the proprietor of my hotel, who I had a chance to chat with when I was last down there four years ago. She said they might sell the, uh, the hotel and, and travel more, she was in no hurry to return to the United States, pointing out that when you come home now, there's cameras everywhere. It struck her as kind of creepy. And you know what? It strikes us as kind of creepy. And in an essay on creepiness uh, of sorts from New Scientist June 27th issue about this matter, the magazine said the following. This is a piece by Hal Hodson. If you're walking down the street, a public street, should a company be able to identify you without your permission? 
That was the key question that caused talks about face recognition technology among privacy advocates, the U.S. government, and consumer groups to fall apart quite spectacularly early this week. The talks were meant to develop a code of conduct for the use of this technology, which is becoming increasingly pervasive, but collapsed after privacy advocates stormed out in protest. The privacy advocates thought the answer to this question was obviously no, but the tech companies disagreed. And the lack of a current consensus means facial recognition is moving into creepy territory. One example is the California-based company Face First, which is rolling out a system for retailers that says it will boost sales by recognizing high-value customers each time they shop and send, quote, alerts when known litigious individuals enter any of your locations, unquote. Said Alvara Bedoya of Georgetown University Law School, what facial recognition allows is a world without anonymity. You walk into a car dealership and the salesman knows your name and how much you make, and that's not a world I want to live in. And I got to say, when I came back through customs in Texas and walked up to one of those kiosks, it takes my passport picture and then scans my face and sees how well they match. I don't know. That's what people do, but it just creeps me out. I was also creeped out by an article in Time magazine, which I read on the airplane, about uh, how, well, they're just relying on new algorithms in job hiring and that they think they can now assess so much more about your emotional IQ and ability to work well with others that, uh, well, this just changed everything in the job market. A friend of mine was recently bitterly complaining about uh, how this is now working in the computer industry. He's a talented programmer and noted that uh, in the old days, you'd walk in, person would say, can you do this and that? Yeah, I can. They'd put you off in the corner to see if you can do it. And if you did it, you got the job. Well, these days, they're intent upon overthinking all of this. And uh, according to marketwatch.com, the average job interview these days takes 23 days, 10 days longer than it did just five years ago. The percentage of job seekers reporting background checks has grown from 25% in 2010 to 42% last year. 23% of applicants were asked to take a skills test this year, up from 16%. And uh, on one final note, I was horrified to see the present state of affairs in a beautiful country like Costa Rica, where there's so much to see and do, and yet noting that every time young people are stopped and sitting down, They all seem to be looking down at their smartphone, checking their email. My regret from this trip is that I spent about, uh, well, maybe 15 minutes on the internet during my week abroad, and um, I think that was about 12 minutes too many. And uh, just to add insult to injury, there was another piece in time about computer games, games for the iPhones and the iPads, and how, how they're being designed cleverly to suck people in, things like Candy Crush Saga. Apparently, if you can get enough morons to play this game, you can make a million dollars a day every day. And the guys that developed it apparently are. To my mind, these are bad businessmen. And saying that, of course, opens the door to use that great tune by the Squirrel Nut Zippers as bumper music. We need a break. And after that, I think I'll come back and talk about La República de Costa Rica. Ustedes están escuchando a Radio Parallax. Yo soy Douglas Everett. Regresamos pronto.
baby's town Tell me lies 